Today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, two people who became peacemakers of a kind after they witnessed a prison execution. First, Jane Davis, who felt compelled to show up for long-term incarcerated or death row prison inmates and at-risk youth to see if a dash of hope might still be nurtured in them that would offer them some inner peace and possibly inspire them to somehow help others. I just found an amazing um, energy and humanity in people that society wants to throw away. Then musician, writer, and activist Steve Earle, who's put his observations about the death row experience into song, shining a light on everyone involved, inmates, guards, and victims' families. I hope my going brings them peace. I'm opposed to the death penalty because of what it does to us. I simply object to the damage that that does to my spirit. Efforts to bring some peace to prison, today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We put the spotlight on peacemakers throughout history and today, whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations. We consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today's program contains some raw and graphic descriptive detail because the peacemaker we spotlight this time looks for the good, the recoverable, the redeemable, among a population that most of society presumes consists of lost causes, the long-term incarcerated or death row inmates in America's prisons. This peacemaker's name is Jane Davis, who runs a nonprofit organization called Hope House, house spelled with a W in the middle, which works primarily with prison inmates and crime-prone youth to help them come to grips with their crimes and maybe find some inner peace, maybe even make a difference in another person's life. Jane Davis's path to this work bears note. Once, as a reporter in 1993, she made what to some seemed like an unusual request as she was taking a media tour of the Georgia State Penitentiary's death row facility. She asked to sit in the electric chair used to execute death row prisoners. She talked about it with our Carol Boss. All of a sudden, that little, you know, that inner voice that speaks to us, not in in audible words... But that inner voice was guiding me, and it was saying, sit in the chair and have somebody take your picture. And I'm laughing to myself, and I I was like, this isn't Disneyland. And yet it was very clear and very strong. And what was being conveyed to me was, you will never have this opportunity again. It's the closest you will ever come to having any semblance of what it's like to sit in an electric chair. So what was it like to sit in an electric chair? Well, here I'm, I'm showing Carol a picture. I know. Yeah, Jane uh, happens to have uh, a color photograph of herself sitting in the electric chair, very vivid color in this photograph. It was, um, I went numb. You know, I, I tied the leather straps as much as I could around my ankles, and, and I was staring out into through this huge pane of glass and there are three rows of um, wooden like church benches and I sat there and I, I was thinking my god you know this will be the last place for someone who's going to be executed looking out into this the people who were sitting out there watching him and uh, about two weeks later 
I was asked to be a media witness at an execution, and I thought, how uncanny is that? For Jane Davis to want to even partially experience what the last moments of a death row prisoner might be like wasn't really out of character for her. She thinks the empathy she's felt for the incarcerated and for death row inmates goes back to when she was 16, when her grandparents were brutally attacked in their New York City apartment. I just remember walking into my grandparents' apartment, and it was the most, it was my first experience with violence. And, and I sat by my grandfather's bed, and we were told that he was not going to survive. And uh, it was a miracle that he did. There was blood all over the walls. Paintings were slashed. My grandfather was unrecognizable. The man had tried to, he took bites out of all over his body. Um, They had fought. The man got away. And I traced the blood, and I ran into Central Park. And I remember running, you know, down all these stairs and uh, to Central Park, and I'm standing in the middle of the park where the blood, because my grandfather had stabbed him, um, the blood dribbled into the grass in Central Park. And I'm standing there looking at this vastness, and it was like he's gone. And I just, I had, I was thinking, who was this? How could one person do this to another human being? It didn't make sense. And I think at that moment, I was catapulted into a logic and the fact that nobody would talk to me. I wanted to explore this little girl's heart, you know, 16 year old who, who was like, how could I wanted to talk about this man had to have had some good. He had to, he needs help. And, and if we don't help him, then I don't want this to ever happen to anybody else. What happened to my family? And nobody would talk to me about it. Maybe that happened to to kind of set me up for the work that I'm I'm doing today. I you know I don't know, but but yes, it, I really I didn't feel the same hatred. I thought there was something wrong with me, frankly, um, and and I thought you know I wanted to be filled with what everybody else seemed to be filled with, but it it just didn't come to me, and so. My life kind of, uh, you know, went on, and when I was finishing um, college, ready for grad school, I ended up going to social work graduate school, and my practicum was with kids at risk. I just found an amazing um, energy and humanity in people that society wants to throw away. I know you reached out to gang kids. You worked in St. Louis. You worked in in New York City. And I I read something where you were writing. What was most disturbing to me was that I was totally comfortable with a man society told me to hate and fear, speaking with a man who has murdered people. And then you talked about how the other piece was a part of him doing good work from inside. Was that a lesson in humanity for you? Yes, it's. It's. I think that that was really, you know, again, what got triggered in that my grandparents' attack. It compelled me even more to go meet these monsters that everyone, you know, seemed to know were out there. So I kind of went and traveled around to death rows and prisons around the country, even internationally. To this day, Carol, I still have not met that monster. I have met human beings who were sociopaths, which is a very profound mental illness. 
And so how we could have any expectation of someone with a mental illness to behave in a way that um, we find acceptable is it, it's not going to happen. And I have sat with men on death row and in prisons and women who have done unconscionable, heinous crimes towards others. And, um, and yet there is always that spark of light and humanity. When I witnessed an execution in 1993 um, as media in Atlanta, Georgia. As a media witness. As a media witness. Um, I was a contributing writer to Prison Life magazine. And I was sitting in the second row. Um, there are three wooden church-like pews with vomit bags at every seat. And that kind of set the tone. Um, we sat down. There's a big, huge plate glass window. And you're looking, staring at the electric chair. And we probably waited for about a half hour, 45 minutes before they brought Chris from the holding cell. And he was standing in the doorway between the holding cell and the chamber itself. And for some reason, his eyes found mine and stuck with me from the moment they brought him into that room till the moment the flap went over his eyes. And I was sitting on the edge of my seat, and I wanted to scream, stop, stop. And I was looking around the room almost frantically, trying to match eyes with someone, like, what is happening here? What are we doing? You know, not just the state, we, human to human. You know, when um, he sat in the in the chair, and they were putting the straps on. And all of a sudden, without thought, I just started mouthing to him, I love you, Chris, go in peace. I had never met Chris. I had read his file. But I just was mouthing, and he was watching my lips. I love you, Chris, go in peace, go in peace. And then they put the flap over his eyes. And um, it, it was visually a horrendous um, thing to watch. When, you know, when we came out and I was trying to talk to people about that, just as I had 16 years earlier with my grandfather, people would say to me, well, what did he do? Well, what did he do? And that wasn't the point for me at that point. It was I wanted to talk about in that nanosecond, where, where our eyes were glued, it was almost like we became one. I knew him um, as a human being, and we were one. It was, oh, my God, this is the connection we're talking about of humanity. We are all one, and, and we have our similarities. And it was from that profound, profound moment of connected oneness of us all that my life changed. The course of your life changed, and in what way was that? Well, about two months later, uh, it was the middle of the night, and I was awakened with thousands of words in my head. And it, it was kind of like I was fighting it and saying, I want to go back to sleep. What is this? And it was conveying to me um, your life's purpose, if you choose to accept it, um, is called Hope House. And it said, here's the logo, the elements, an eye, a heart, a hand. And it, lay, it said, you're going to do a lot of prison work. And it wasn't about prison um, administrate. It was about the humans who live in prisons. Hope House is, I think, first and foremost, a philosophy 
which is embraced by the um, acronym HELP Other People Evolve Through Honest, Open, Willing, Self-Evaluation and Expression. And also as evidenced in the logo, the eye, the heart, the hand. The eye stands for honesty, and that's self-honesty. It's not like what I think of your hair or your clothes. It's self-honesty. And we're talking about going on such a really deep journey of self-honesty that one cannot go that deep without faith. And the heart represents faith in whatever. So it's not a particular religion. It's not a particular path. It's something outside yourself, outside your own ego. Then the hand represents action or service. One has to have peace within themselves before they can bring peace to their community, to their families, to their relationships, to the world. You have worked um, mostly with incarcerated individuals. Can you talk about this process, this pathway? I'm going to share one um, with a, a young man that I connected with 15 years ago. And this was um, a young man who wrote a letter. And his first letter came out in August of 1998. And in that letter, he said, I don't know who will receive this, but whoever does, just pray for me because I got a long way to go. I'm 15 years old, and I am lost as can be. And this was a young African-American gang member in juvenile prison for violent crimes. And he was driven to send this letter out into the world, and it happened to land on my desk. And someone sent it to me with attitude and said, here, you'll work with anyone. No one wanted to touch him. And so I, I responded to him. I said, when you come out, we'll meet. And we did, and I showed up for him, and I said, you have to do the work. You know, the, the process is not about codependency or being enmeshed with people. And I said to him at the beginning, I am not invested in whether you make it or you don't make it. But if you are asking for help, my job is, my piece is, I will be with you every step of the way. And I think sometimes it's as simple as that. Every story I have to share with you, has that element of just show up, and then magic happens. And what, what he's told me over the years is when we met, we met at a coffee shop in Atlanta, and I looked in his eyes and I said, I believe in you. And he cried. And that, to this day, he tells me, no one ever said that to me. So what a simple thing to say, but I didn't make it up. I really believed it. What did you two talk about? What happened in your meetings with each other that got him from the point of desperation to a point of responsibility? One of the things, of course, as a, as a teenager, one of the issues he had was um, he didn't want to use condoms. And so every relationship he had, he would call. He was terrified that the girl had gotten pregnant. And so we would have very deep discussions and very honest discussions about condoms and sexuality and and how to deal with that if his aim was to change his life around. 
and and what were the repercussions going to be? Um, we would talk about his his gang affiliations because it wasn't it wasn't like he just poof came out of the gang. So we just talked about really whatever he needed to talk about. I didn't do anything, and I think that that is so key for people to understand what we can do if we want to help others is again this show up and we have to do the process ourselves so you can't give away what you don't possess how could I sit with anybody if I haven't done the work on my dark side and so I think part of what we all um, can collectively do is own ourselves. The process, the eye, the heart, the hand, applies to us too. It's not just about people in prison. And that's the, the more the depth of, of the spiritual piece. So Rod knew he had a place to talk about anything he needed to, and I was not going to judge him um, for whatever he needed to talk about, which was sexuality, um, religion, problems with his mother, you know, issues with the girlfriends, issues with the gangs. Some people would say that what you've described is a therapeutic or a counseling relationship. Are you trained as a therapist? The reality is I am trained as a therapist, but the relationship I have is not a therapeutic one. As a matter of fact, um, I don't even share with people that I have that training and I'm not doing therapy. Because the act of showing up is a spiritual transformation. And so it's, it's my work is, um, is, is from that perspective, the spiritual perspective of, of showing up. And when I enter into a therapeutic relationship with someone, that's a whole different ballgame. And I don't do that through Hope House. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. More of Carol Boss's conversation with Jane Davis, and later, musician and death penalty opponent Steve Earle, all after a short break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. In a moment, musician and activist Steve Earle. But right now, more of Carol Boss's interview with a peacemaker who believes that even those in the most desperate and dire straits, long-term incarcerated or death row prison inmates, can find some inner peace and even be of service to others. It's Jane Davis, whose organization Hope House works with prison inmates, at-risk youth, and victims' families. Well, well, did you have experiences working with individuals who have been incarcerated, who have done um, heinous crimes? 
one of the the young men I worked with um, committed a very, very heinous, sadistic, sexual crime against a child. And logically, who needs this guy? Who wants to sit with him? Who cares about him? You know, throw away the key, you know, fry him. This is logical. What is not logical is to sit with him and care about him. I worked with him for five years. And when I say worked with him, in the Hope House fashion, showed up, just showed up and met with him regularly. It was about five years after we had been meeting, speaking, um, maybe monthly, every other month for that time. One day, he looked me in the eyes and he said, Jane, there's something we've never spoken about. And I kind of wanted to grip my seat because I knew where we were going. And everything inside of me kind of fluttered. And I looked at him and I said, are you ready? And he said, yes. And tears started coming out of his eyes. And he started taking me through his crime. Well, he kind of got up to one point of the crime, which is is where he had invited a neighbor child into the woods, and then kind of skipped, you know, over the next hour of the story, and, and all of a sudden the story was wrapping up. And so I took a deep breath because I also understand in, in showing up for others, part of by allowing someone to speak their truths, um, we're helping them to achieve a spiritual peace. And so after he finished, I looked at him and I said, uh, there's something you left out. <laughs> and and we kind of looked at each other, and, and he just looked at me with this horrified, fearful look in his eyes because he knew what he had left out was the actual crime. And And the way I helped him to get there, I said to him, tell me at what moment did the little boy know he was in trouble? And he started weeping. He put his head in his hands and wept and wept and wept. I think that was the first time that he actually was feeling the depth and horror of what he had done. And he looked at me and he said, when he looked up at me and said, I thought you were my friend. And we both just wept. But at that point on, he was able to take responsibility in a way he had not been able to. And he will never come out of prison. And, and he, um, he helps others in prison now go through that process. And he shows up for others because he went through the process himself. And there was a transformation. And we still keep in touch. Can you illustrate more when you say um, spiritual peace, what that means for that individual? One of the things that I've always offered, and I offer anyone in prison who is affiliated with Hope House in any way, my question to them is, how can you be of help to others from where you live? And so I offer, whether we're out here being of service 
or inside. And so a lot of the men and women that I work with and Hope House works with in prison have been helpful with gang kids, have been helpful to others. And so there's this profound kind of line of being of service, and and there really is peace in that act. I'm really interested in the whole idea of um, incarcerated individuals um, being encouraged to be of service and it um, being a pathway to peace. One thing that comes to mind was um, I I was contacted by an attorney who once read an article I wrote about – it was called I Met God on Death Row. And he contacted me and he said, I have a a client on death row in Texas who's Jewish and he's never had a visitor – Um, would you visit him? And so my answer was yes. All of a sudden I'm showing up and, you know, for Max on on death row, and they bring him out. Well, he was most curious when they simply said, a woman is here to visit you. And um, in Texas on death row, they're always, once they go, you're always behind. You never hug another person. They're behind glass. And so they brought him into this little cubicle and undid his, his, the shackles. And here he's sitting and he's staring at me, you know, so curious. And I introduced myself, told a little about Hope House and, and that his attorney had asked me. And, and I always say, frankly, I don't really know why I'm here except to show up for you and bring dignity and say that you're not forgotten. It could be that simple. And so we spent four hours together talking about so many things, life, and he shared some things about his family. And all of a sudden, the guard taps on the window and says, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. And my thought was, oh, my God, how do you, how do you wrap up a, a visit? Max was Jewish, and I'm Jewish. And what came to me is, as I said to him, Max, when was the last time you said the Shema which is the most powerful prayer in Judaism. And it's about echad, which means one. When I said that, he just started weeping, and I had my answer. So without skipping a beat, I put my hands, both of my hands up on the glass, like spread-eagled, and his immediately found mine. And I just started saying, Shema Yisroel, Adonai Eloheinu. And he was watching my lips as he repeated the the Shema. We said it three times when the guard tapped and said, time's up. And that was the end of our, our visit. And Max and I still, to this day, keep in touch. And um, he's been on death row a long time. And so he kind of found a path back to his roots, which were Judaism. And he started getting reconnected with his Jewish roots, which he had just walked away from. Let me just say something about Max. Sure. Because I did read about Max in an article. And he was quoted as saying, as insanity approaches me to hold my hand, Miss Davis is at my cage holding my other hand, keeping my mind safe and peace. You know, and again, it's the principle. See, it's the simple principle of showing up. And it doesn't take rocket science. You know, we don't have to go to graduate school. It it really is profound, and it touches lives, and it changes lives. And I always say on um, on death row, where there's life, there's hope. So it's service as a path to peace. Show up every day. It's to it's to live life in a very conscious manner of 
what shows up? Be aware of what shows up in front of you. And then we have a choice, of course, either to do something or not. But I like to move people from their intellect and logic and head into their heart. Everybody in today's world is so busy. And so if you ask somebody, you know, offer an opportunity to to do something, oh, well, I can't because, and then you hear the whole laundry list of what they're doing. And I think we cut off time. But when we are open to being of service, where that's the priority in our action, things, oh, time expands. Um, and then it's, it's really just such a beautiful, your, your heart has more peace. As you say, Jane, many people considering the prisoners you work with do say, lock them up and throw away the key or execute them. What would you say to them to move them to a place of caring in a different way about them? I, I say, always say I'm not in the outcome business. I don't do it with the expectation of changing somebody's mind, but I think that through sharing the stories, um, if I can touch hearts, I have had people um, transform who did believe they wanted to throw away the key, and, and people have stayed away. There's kind of sometimes this you know macabre um, interest because they hate what I'm talking about, and I would say they don't need your judgment. They need your help. And when you are so judgmental, you cut off the ability for anyone to change and grow. And so I just encourage people to remember things like that, to watch the words that are coming out of your mouth. And if they're harsh and judgmental, you really don't know who you're talking to. That person's son might be in prison. That person may have committed a crime. And by our harsh words, we cut off the ability to create peace with another. So there is a commitment to the value of, of human dignity, and that manages, you're saying, to translate to the lives of those incarcerated. And, and Carol— and That's a big piece of it. it. It is a big piece, and I also want to make the point— that the work we do in prisons, the work of Hope House is not political and it's not issue-oriented. So when we go into the prisons, it's for the human beings. And we also work with, with victims and victims' families because it's helping people find that peace in, in their hearts. I, I've walked many men through their executions and um, have witnessed both electric chair and lethal injection. And, and one night when I was present for an execution in Texas, um, I was staying in a motel, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, someone was pounding on my door. I could hear screaming my name and crying, and I opened the door. It was the mother of the man who was going to be executed the next day. And, you know, she came into my hotel room, and I just held her in my arms, and she wept and wept and wept and was begging me, can't you do something? And, of course, I can't, and she knew I couldn't. And um, But, you know, it was I was holding her tears on my shoulder. And when I've held children, the, the sons or daughters or, or nieces or nephews on, on death row in Texas who are saying goodbye to their family member through a pained piece of glass, there's so many layers to the humanity and, and how so many of us are touched. Um, and so it, it's just, it's not peaceful. It's not peaceful what's being created 
um, oftentimes in prisons and death rows. You know, I, I, I came across another article that was uh, about you, and it's um, 10, 11 years old, called The Hope Within, about how when you were six years old and you were living in Kingston, New York, you'd go to the old age home next door and sit with the residents as a six-year-old and listen to their stories, and that something inside, it says in this article, told you that showing up for another human being was an important thing to do. Boy, Carol, I forgot about that. <laughs> it, it is true, and I, I can remember, um, I, I can remember, again, not from my, my head, but my heart, um, how that felt to show up. And there was, there was one man in this old age home who, um, obviously now I wouldn't have had the word Alzheimer's at the time, but they would bring him outside, and they would tie him up in the chair so he could be out in the sun. And he would scream and scream. I would hear him in my bedroom. And it was, it was next door to where we lived. It was this beautiful old Victorian home. And so I would always go out and I would sit on the ground next to him. And I would put my head on his knee. And he would put his hand, like, or his elbow, or wherever he could touch. He would touch me and he would be quiet. And they used to ask me, would you come over and visit the other people? And and I was so excited, and, and I always did. And, and I would just go sit with the old people. So, Jane, thank you so very much for joining me on Peace Talks. Oh, Carol, thank you so much for having me. For more about Jane Davis's organization, Hope House, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, with scores of episodes available to hear online musician and death penalty opponent Steve Earle after a short break. listening to Peace Talks Radio. It's the radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. The death penalty is still a punishment option for murder in 35 of the United States, and for some it represents a disconnect with their commitment to nonviolence. Rather than kill a criminal convicted of a horrible crime, death penalty opponents say, let's do life imprisonment without parole. That's the stance of musician, writer, and activist Steve Earle, who in 2004 told me that he saw the debate over the death penalty in this country a definite peace issue. Well, I don't oppose the death penalty to try to save someone on on death row. I'm opposed to the death penalty because of what it does to us. I I object if this is a democracy, which it it is, I think, um 
if the government kills someone, then I'm killing someone. And I simply object to the damage that that does to my spirit. Um, I mean I was always against war and I was always against the death penalty. But I understand it now in a way that I, that I didn't before mainly because I wrote a song for a film um, called Dead Man Walking. And the way that came about is I'd written songs about my opposition to the death penalty and Tim Robbins called me and asked if he could send a rough cut of the film. And and he said, well, if it inspires anything, you know, we're making this record, you know, to go with the movie. I watched the film, and there was one scene in it where Sister Helen Prejean, who the film's about, is talking to a guard in a death row unit where she's been visiting an inmate for some time. And the guard is having somewhat of a crisis of conscience, and she asks him about what he does when the executions actually take place. And he says, the leg, the left leg. That's what I do. And it was like he was executing only a part of a person, you know. And it was necessary to come up with procedures like that um, in order for human beings to be willing to take another life. We're really not that willing to kill. Uh, it's uh, the people that, that advocate the death penalty, uh, people that support the death penalty in their defense. Most people advocate it and support it without knowing anything about it. I was fresh out of the service It was back in 82 I raised some cane and I come back to town I went in to be all I could be Come home without a clue Mid-dawn and had to settle down I just hide on at the prison I guess I always knew it would Just like my dad and both my uncles done I worked on every cell block now Things were going good Till they transferred me to Ellis Unit 1 Swing low, swing low, swing low and carry me home. Now my daddy used to tell me about them long nights at the walls. How they used to strap them in the chair. There were kids down from the college and they'd bring the beer and all. When lights went out, cheerios in the air. I guess folks just got too civilized. Old Spark is gathering dust. Cause no one wants to touch a smoking gun. They got that injection nine that don't mind as much, I guess. So they put them down on this Union One. Swing blue, swing low, swing low and carry. 
Now I seen them fight like lions, boys. I seen them go like lambs. I've had to drag them when they could not stand. Heard their mamas crying when they heard the big door slam. I seen the victim's family holding hands. Last night I dreamed that I woke up with straps across my chest. Something cold and black pumped through my lungs. Couldn't save me Though I know he did his best He don't live on Ever's unit one Swing low Swing low Swing low And carry me home LS Unit 1, performed by Steve Earle in Santa Fe in September of 2004. Thanks. Steve Earle is visiting with us on Peace Talks today, and we're talking about the death penalty. I oppose it having witnessed an execution in the state of Texas. It was the execution of an inmate that I'd known for several years. He was not innocent. Innocent guys don't write me for some reason. All my guys have been guilty that I've known on death row over the years. Uh, and he was guilty of a heinous crime. But he changed a lot during the time that he was in prison, and he didn't want to be free. He, he and, and, and at first he wasn't sure that he didn't want to be executed. But uh, he, he became involved in Catholicism, and through faith, that his faith arrived at the idea that, that taking a life was the wrong thing to do, period, for any reason. And he really truly believed that when he died. But he... He uh, The big thing for me, when John was gone, I actually, I wasn't that worried about John. He had been there a long time, and he was out of there, and they couldn't hurt him anymore. But I had this amazing, surprising amount of empathy for the people that had to participate in that execution. The guards, you know, the doctor, you know, the lawyers involved in the process, and the victim's family members who were on the other side of the wall because they had to be there. We... You don't get a death sentence out of a jury without putting the victim's family members on the stand and making them cry. You don't put them on the stand. You don't get them to cry. We aren't going to sentence some human being to death. We're just not that willing to do that. Watching that, can you talk about that experience outside of what you just said, what it moved inside of you? Well, it was a very strange experience, a very surreal experience. I mean, um, human beings really want to live, and I watched a— Relatively healthy, considering he'd been in prison for 13 years. Big, strong, 37-year-old man put to death. And and John, it's lethal injection in Texas, which is supposed to be humane. But I didn't see somebody just going to sleep. I saw John had a prearranged signal, which is what's done in Texas. Um, when he started, um, he had a statement that he wanted to give, which was a Bible 
quotation that he had memorized, and he was really worried that he'd forget it, and he didn't. He remembered every bit of it word for word. And he spoke to the victim's family members first, and he apologized, and he cried during that. And then he looked at me, and he said, Steve, I can't believe I had to go through all this just to see you in a suit. And then he um, he did the he did the, the Bible verse, and then he started singing Silent Night. And what I didn't know at the time was that was his prearranged um, signal with the warden. And the warden's prearranged signal that he always used, that particular warden who was working uh, in those days, took off his glasses, and that was the signal to the executioner who was behind a window, and we couldn't see him. And in Texas, they don't use a machine. There's no you know, plausible denial. They just they just get somebody volunteers and gets a little extra money to push drugs through a tea fitting just like they do in a surgery and in a hospital or when you're in the hospital and they put up you know, when they put drugs into your IV. That's how it's done in Texas. Um and he started singing Silent Night and that was because he had talked to his mother who he hadn't spoken to the entire time he'd been in prison the night before and she said, John, when you were when you were a kid I used to love the way you sang Silent Night. And so he was singing Silent Night for his mother, who he hadn't seen in over 20 years. And when he got to the words mother and child, he all it was like all the air blew out of his lungs at once. It was like, And it made a really loud noise because there was a microphone hanging above his head. And he, he couldn't hear us, but we could hear him. It was like, huh! It was one of the loudest sounds I've ever heard. And his head pitched forward with enough force that his glasses, big, heavy, plastic prison-issue glasses, bounced off, landed on his chest, and fell on the floor. And then he didn't move again. Um, and um, it seemed pretty violent to me. Is there not a song on Transcendental Blues that deals with this topic? Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, and it's about, it's about Jonathan Nobles. Over Yonder was just my way of dealing with it because it's taken me. I don't. I don't. I still don't think I've fully recovered from watching um, us us kill a human being. Once mail my letter, chaplain's waiting by the door. Now we cross that yard together And they can't hurt me anymore Cause I am going over yonder Where no ghosts follow me Another place beyond here Where I be free I believe you can Get my radio to Johnson Tibido can have my fan Just send my Bible home, Mama Holler every now and then Cause I Go nowhere yonder Where no ghosts Follow me There's another place Beyond here Where I've been 
Steve Earle's song, Over Yonder, written in the voice of John Nobles, a convicted double murderer who invited Steve to witness his 1998 execution by the state of Texas. We'll have more with Steve Earle a little later. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Clearly, Steve Earle and others believe that executing criminals does not model nonviolent conflict resolution, yet 35 states in the Union still have the death penalty. Polls on the issue indicate a nation split, and the figures depend on how the question is asked. Typically, if asked, do you support or oppose the death penalty for those convicted of premeditated murder, lately about 65% say yes, they favor the death penalty. The number of those favoring the death penalty stated in that question has been downtrending in recent years from its high of 80% in 1994. But when asked, do you favor the death penalty or prefer to see it replaced with life imprisonment, with no hope for parole, and the prisoner working to help raise money for the victim's families, generally about the same number of people support that alternative strategy as support the death penalty, around 48% for each option. A few other facts. Of the 1,193 executions in the United States since 1976, about two out of three were conducted in only five states. Texas, Virginia, Missouri, Florida, and Oklahoma. Texas leads the other states in number of killings by far. In some of the states that still have the death penalty, legislatures have been debating the issue, in part because of the exposure of some mistakes in applying the death penalty, and in part because some death row inmates were ultimately found to be innocent before executions were carried out. One state that grappled with it for many years before abolishing the death penalty in 2009 was New Mexico. In hearings recorded in 2005, legislators heard many of the arguments against the death penalty that we're hearing from Steve Earle today, but they also heard from death penalty supporters, and reporter Deborah Martinez gathered some of that testimony for us. Lawmakers heard from people like Mike Bowen, a retired state police officer who spoke on behalf of law enforcement. We in the law enforcement community believe that the death penalty works, and we believe it is a deterrent. It's been proven to us as Mr. Martinez mentioned, especially during the the prison riot of 1980. And on behalf of those men and women who work in what's been described, these rat holes out there, and those of us who had the honor and the privilege of working with officers of the caliber of Gerald Klein, we ask you to kill this bill. Thank you. 
Donna McNevin's father was shot dead at a KOA campground, and she spoke out in favor of the current law, warning that repealing it would invite killers to New Mexico. Will we be telling murderers from other states to come to our state because they will not be held responsible for the actions that they have chosen to take? Are we saying it's okay to brutally murder? Are we telling them that New Mexico has just given them the green light to continue to murder as there are no penalties of death? Will we then become like other countries that allow murder to occur and we just turn the other cheek? Do we just allow our loved ones to be buried in shallow graves to be heard from no longer? I hope that we will continue to send a strong message to the citizens of New Mexico and the United States that premeditated willful, willful murder will not be tolerated here. We need to make it loud and clear to murderers. If they willingly choose to take a life, they should be willing to lay down theirs. Steve Earle is visiting with us on Peace Talks today, and we're talking about the death penalty. As an activist for many years on this issue, I'm sure you've had to field all the traditional arguments in favor of the death penalty. Uh, Is there anything about the severity of the crime that uh, you think makes a a favorable argument for this? No, because when you start talking about the severity of the crime and you start as a human being trying to figure out what crimes deserve the death sentence and which don't, you get into a very, very dangerous area. And I I think one of the most dangerous things about it is the – it becomes retribution by – definition it becomes revenge if you if you decide that well he did a more horrible thing than this person then then you are admitting and and people have no problem with the concept of retribution in the society lately i submit that we were headed in a different direction when i was growing up in the 60s and 70s we were becoming as a society more human and more humane and we finally realized that that the purpose of a of a penal system shouldn't be um, retribution revenge punishment and revenge are two different things you know punishing when you punish a child and there's you know it's arguable when that's when that's appropriate but when you punish a child you're doing it basically to correct their behavior but when you do it when you perform violent a violent act on another human being for no other reason but to make yourself feel better about your own pain and anger, it perpetuates that type of violence, and uh, it becomes very contagious. If the idea is closure, that you know you just end up with blood on your hands, and and you'll end up thinking about that that act of vengeance for the rest of your life. And I think there's a lot in in human experience that backs that up. You know, I'm not a Christian and I'm not, you know, I'm not a Buddhist and I'm not a Muslim, but I very much believe in God. I'm a recovering addict. I have to. I, I have to believe in a power greater than myself or, or I'm dead. But in a Christian in, in a Christian tradition, the idea is that there comes a time that that there that the evil in the world and the violence in the world can only be stopped one way, and that is by never, ever taking a life under any circumstances, no matter what someone does to you. Have you talked with victims' families as you've explored this issue? And what have you found about this closure business or the satisfaction that they are supposed to get uh, out of this uh, procedure? 
I've met people, you know, of course, Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation, which is a support group. It doesn't exist to oppose the death penalty. It exists as a support group for murder victims, family members, but it was founded by people that didn't think that the death penalty was an answer to their pain and their anger. I've seen people that were still very much angry and, and witnessed executions and swore that they felt better, but I haven't seen any witness of that. I haven't seen any healing from those people in the long term running into them. But I've seen more people who opposed the death penalty, who had lost members of their own families to violence, and those people are healing. That's something I can I can testify to. I've watched Bud Welch. She's lost a daughter in, in the Oklahoma City bombing. He's a member of MBFR, and he travels around this country speaking against the death penalty. Um, he got to know Timothy McVeigh's father, which is a pretty incredible act of reconciliation. And I see these people getting better. And um, it's uh, – I witnessed an execution – I promise it isn't going to heal anybody. I'm not talking about it as an abstract. And most of the people that will pitch the death penalty to you don't really know anything about how it's instituted, what the legal legal ramifications are, uh, and don't know anything about it as far as the actual you know execution of a human being because they've never actually witnessed it themselves. Steve, thanks for spending time with us today on Peace Talks. Thanks. To see video of the two Steve Earle songs you heard today, as well as to read more about both sides of the debate over the death penalty, you can go to our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all of the programs in our series going back to 2003, order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast and our newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program. It's where this month you can buy a raffle ticket to support the program and possibly win a new cherry wood guitar signed by Bonnie Raitt, Roberta Flack, Lyle Lovett, John Hyatt, Taj Mahal, Sean Colvin, Leo Kotke, Brandy Carlisle, and Lucy Kaplansky. Details about the guitar raffle at peacetalksradio.com. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, AMP Concerts, Albuquerque's roving concert series presenting world, folk, and eclectic shows online at ampconcerts.org, and from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.